Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 39, Pope Damasus I. Is this the guy who does poetry? He is the guy who does poetry! And he is a big one. Uh, heavier hitters of the early church, and most people will know him for his poetry or for some other reason. So this is a big one. Prepare yourself. All right. Is it a long one or just big? Uh, both. Oh. But before we get into that, we have an announcement to make. Okay. This announcement is coming out because when you hear this at time of release, I am going on my honeymoon to Japan. As of this month, the episodes are going to be released on a fortnightly schedule because I will be away and we need to make sure that everything still gets out on time. So there will be no episode released next week on April 8th or on April 22nd. You can expect an episode on April 15th, and then by the 29th, the schedule will resume as normal, and I will be back and hopefully not terribly, terribly jet-lagged. So with that out of the way, and, you know, all of the bonus content that we put out in March for you to prepare you for this little lack of popedom, Let's get into it, because we have no time to waste. <laughs> All right, let's go. Damascus. I can't. Dam Damascus. Damascus. <laughs> okay, let's see if you stick with that for the episode. <laughs> so, Damascus was born in 305 in Indaha Anova, which is in Portugal, in what was the Iberian Roman province of Lusitania. His parents were devout Christians, and his father, Antonius, was a priest in the church of the St. Lawrence outside the walls in Rome. And we know that his mother was Laurentia, and he had a sister. Oh, a whole sister. Yeah, this is the first we can actually record. We only really know about her because of something we'll talk about a little bit later, but details! Hooray! This is this time period! We're getting things! We also know that Damasus got his church career serving as a deacon in his father's church, and went to serve as a priest in Rome after he'd finished his education and service there. So this is a man who got a very, very early start in the church. So Damasus is growing up in the context of the changing empire, right, where Emperor Constantine is coming to power and shifting the fortune of the Christians. Being born in 305 puts Damasus at about the age of eight at the time of the Edict of Milan, which ensured empire-wide toleration. And in his 20s, when Constantine defeats Licinius and becomes sole emperor of the Roman Empire. He would have served in the church through the Council of Nicaea, the rise of the Arians in the east, the shift of the empire's capital from Rome to Constantinople, all of the drama with Constantine II and Constantius II and Constans, and, of course, everything that was going on with Athanasius. He's witnessing everything, he's watching everything, and while this is all happening, he is rising through the ranks. Now by 354, Damasus was serving as an archdeacon to Liberius, along with Felix. And then Liberius gets banished by the emperor for refusing to condemn Athanasius and sign that Arian creed, and appoints Felix to be his replacement, aka Antipope. Damasus goes a different way. He follows Liberius into exile. Interesting choice. And then he comes right back to Rome to acknowledge Felix instead. Oh, was it that bad? He could not shake it in exile, apparently. 
Or, you know, maybe he saw that his opportunity for power and influence would be greater back in Rome without a pope and this anti-pope that everybody hated now, which it was. And at this point, he takes on quite a load of church administration. Now, of course, Damasus wasn't the only member of the clergy to support Felix when Liberius was exiled. Most of the higher-ups in the church did the same, likely because they didn't want to give up their comfortable positions. You know, it was the lower-ranking churchmen and the laity of Rome that had gone on to fully choose to ignore Felix. And when Liberius returns in 356, they were the ones that violently ousted Felix to welcome Liberius back, despite Constantius's fantastic idea that maybe they should co-pope. So we can assume at that point, when Liberius comes back, that his relationship with Damasus was probably pretty strained. And it said that the two men are not able to reconcile until Antipope Felix had died, which we will cover in his special episode on Patreon. But this decision to support Felix had made enemies for Damasus as well that weren't going to be as forgiving for his changing sides as the Pope eventually was, and we're going to see these people be problematic for him in the future. And we really see this play out in 366, when Pope Liberius dies, and it is time for the next election for Pope. And and by the way, just for, for context's sake, he would be in his 60s at the time of this election. That's quite, quite old. I mean, most popes are old, but... Yeah, so he's had a pretty extensive time, you know, to witness what's going on in the church and to serve in the church since he got such an early start. And, of course, as serving as the archdeacon, he'd been doing a lot of heavy lifting for the church during Liberius's exile, and he's looking like a pretty good choice for successor. And he has the support of all the upper-class clergymen and the civil servants and the prefects who had supported Felix. But all those lower-level clergymen, who had remained faithful to Liberius the whole time, and were closest with the Christian laity of Rome, do not want to see Damasus become pope at all. Mm, yeah, okay. They denounce him for his wavering loyalties, for living a very opulent lifestyle. Couldn't find any more details on that, but they're condemning his opulent lifestyle. And so they put forward their own candidate, a deacon called Ursinus. So what ends up happening is that Ursinus and Damasus are elected simultaneously. Oh, that's not good. Damasus is elected at a congregation who is voting in the Basilica San Lorenzo in Lucina, and a minority group in the Basilica of Sinitius, today known as the Basilica di Santa Maria Maggiore, held a protest election to elevate Ursinus to the role of Pope, which is then declared publicly and as a means of getting the jump on the election that had chosen Damasus, which means Ursinus is our next anti-pope. Hooray! And then something crazy happens. If we're to believe J.N.D. Kelly, a Christian academic and theologian, then what happened next is that Damasus hires a, quote, gang of thugs that stormed the basilica that Ursinus and his followers had gone to and massacred 137 people in an outbreak of mass violence. That's very bad. Obviously, there are other accounts of how this went down, but the act of violence itself and the murder of 137 people is a definite thing. Like, this definitely happened. It's just, what role did Damasus play in that? Our source for this is Ammianus Marcellinus from Roman Antiquities in Book 27, Chapter 3, who says just the following. He says, 
Damasus and Arsenus, burning with a superhuman desire of seizing the bishopric, engaged in bitter strife because of their opposing interests, and the supporters of both parties went even so far as conflicts ending in bloodshed and death. Since Viventius was able neither to end nor diminish the strife, he was compelled to yield to its great violence and retired to the suburbs. And in the struggle, Damasus was victorious through the efforts of the party which favored him. It is a well-known fact that in the Basilica of Sinitius, where the assembly of the Christian sect is held, in a single day, 137 corpses of the slain were found, and that it was only with difficulty that the long-continued frenzy of the people was afterwards quieted. Not good. Mm -mm. But it doesn't really give any sort of uh, indication of who has a, a guilty part in this. But here is another account from a Christianity.com article written by Dan Graves, who says, Followers of Ursinus resorted to a violence in their effort to oust Damasus. Damasus appealed to Juventius, the prefect of Rome, a high-ranking magistrate, and the prefect ordered Ursinus out of town. Ursinus left, but his followers did not lay down their arms. Damasus gathered men, armed them, and attacked his rival's forces, who took refuge in the Liberian Basilica. A three-day battle followed. The supporters of Damasus assaulted the building from the street and also climbed onto the roof, which they tore open, flinging heavy tiles onto the men trapped below. Mm -hmm. That is not good. <sighs> Why is all, oh my god. Yeah. This is just the beginning. Yeah, we're not even 15 minutes in here. This is his election. <laughs> Throwing things on people's heads. Not good. Whatever way we look at it, we know for sure that things got extremely violent. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> it sounds like there was a lot of death. Yep. 137 people were killed, and two prefects of the civil authority had to be called into the city to get things under control. So whether this was something that was targeted or something that was mutual... There is no way that this is good. That Nobody comes out looking good here. This is major scandal points. Damasus is our first murder pope. <laughs> well, he's not even elected yet. <sighs> well, he has been elected, technically. It's just that someone else has been elected at the same time as him. And like the source suggests, he still manages to be the one who comes out on top here. And this is mainly because the Roman prefects who had to step in because and stop the violence, they banish Ursinus and his followers to Cologne in Gaul. We can't say immediately that this was Ursinus's fault, though, because we know that the prefects had already sided with Damasus, and clearly both men were motivated by some level of extreme ambition, so there's that. And there is a brief mention that when Ursinus returns from exile, things get violent again, and Emperor Valentinian will have to step in and re-exile Ursinus, but there is a potential that he was an instigator, but we don't know. Oh, and apparently after this moment, it's just a fun fact for what the rest of the papacy is going to look like, maybe Damasus hired gladiators as bodyguards after this point. Oh my god. All right. So, um, I saw this sourced in a couple of places, but, um, none of them are particularly highly academic, and I am 100% skeptical. So, guards, yes. Gladiators, probably not. But for the sake of it, I'd like to say it's true. Now, as for Damasus, historians, for the most part, are on his side. 
including historians from similar time periods. Particularly St. Jerome, not surprisingly, and we'll get to why, supports him fully, and so does Rufinus, another major church historian figure. Modern historian Thomas Shahan is also on his side, arguing that the original primary source crediting him for starting it all comes from the Libellus Precum, which is chapter 13, 83 to 107, still available online but only in Latin. He calls it a highly prejudiced source by two anti-Damason presbyters. For the record, this book that they're sourcing, the Libellus Precum, is just a book of prayers. So obviously whatever he's reading is a specific copy. Even more telling, though, there is a full-on synod convened in 378 to deal with this initial conflict and a charge of murder against Damasus. But at the end of the synod, it is Ursinus who gets condemned. Damasus gets exonerated, he's declared the true pope, and it will be one of many councils and movements under Damasus where the primacy of Rome will be addressed and pushed for, but I get there in a little bit. So they just kind of threw this into the council on the merit that the Bishop of Rome should always be the one to appoint bishops and deal with accused bishops because Orsinus had been supported by bad bishops, and so the Pope needs to make sure that bishops are good bishops because things like this happen. Ironic, since Damasus had been a flip-floppy bishop who was like, I'm following you to exile. Oh, wait, no, I'm not. I don't like it here. At this point, he's finally Pope after all of that went down. And he calls a small council of local bishops to approve of his actions in the whole mess that had unfolded and to openly condemn Ursinus. And he apparently called this on his birthday. Oh, okay. Apparently, the bishops were expecting more of a birthday party, and maybe they weren't <laughs> his biggest fans at that moment, because apparently when he asked them for approval, the response he got was, quote, We assembled for a birthday. Not to condemn a man unheard. That's what he wants for his present. <laughs> exactly. That's, that is sourced from a dictionary of Christian biography, literature, sex, and doctrines by Sir William Smith and Henry Ways. So he is not off to a good start by any measurable metric. Nothing is, is very good for him at this point. We are already very, very high in scandal. Yeah. 134 bodies high. 137. I counted wrong. <laughs> but now begins a long papacy with a lot of things to talk about. Like, shockingly. So first, administration. So there, we're not going to have any other place to stick this, so we're going to just throw it in here. Here it goes. Damasus consecrated 62 bishops during his papacy. That seems like so many. That is so, so many compared to anybody else that we've dealt with at this point. Didn't we have a rule, like, don't make bishops for just stupid junk? Yeah, but uh, he's gonna make all the bishops. <laughs> so. Beside that, the first thing that Damasus is going to do is come down hard on heresy. Of the surviving documents that we have from Damasus, 24 are anathemas condemning various heresies, and he also held two synods for a more major official condemnation in 368 and 369, of Apollinarianism and Macedonianism. Apollinarianism, so-called after Apollinaris of Laodicea, was all about the nature of Christ. Again. Every time. He argued that Jesus had a divine mind, not a human mind, but he had a human body and a, quote, lower soul because he had emotions. 
And this comes out of something that we're going to be talking a lot about in the future, which is to understand the nature or natures of Christ. The argument that Jesus only has one nature will be called monophysitism. Whereas the Orthodox perspective that will come out from the First Council of Constantinople will be that Christ was both fully human and fully God. And that's going to be called a hypostatic union. So It's way easier to say. Yeah. And we're going to have to talk about the monophysites for so long, so. It fails because it's impossible to pronounce. Yes, but the one that we're actually talking about is Apollinarianism, which didn't want to argue for a fully human or a fully god or both. They basically wanted to say he was neither. What was he then, a dog? He, he, was, he was a little bit of both, but not fully either. So, divine mind... Not a human mind, but a human body and a lower soul. So they were just kind of hodgepodgey it. So they are condemned by Damasus. Macedonianism, after Macedonius of Constantinople, was basically the next evolution of Arianism over the divinity of the Holy Spirit this time. Oh, well, nobody's really talked about the Holy Spirit yet. Oh, we're gonna get there. We're gonna start right now, I guess. Well... So they argue that the Holy Spirit was made by the Son, so it's lesser than the Son and the Father, and since we've been over the Nicene Creed so very much at this point, I don't have to point out why that wouldn't fly with the Catholic Church at this point. Condemned. So the synods convened by Damasus condemn both these heresies, which will be reconfirmed in the Council of Constantinople in 381. Which, speaking of, the Pope did not attend, but we're seeing that become tradition, and he sends legates instead of himself. In brief, this council would confirm the Nicene Creed and expand on it and amend it to what will be called the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, which was the most important addition is that whole inclusion of, And we believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who was with the Father and the Son together and is worship and glorified, who spake by the prophets, and we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and life of the world to come. So that is what came out of the Council of Constantinople. Now for the rest of what we're looking at here, we're going to need a little imperial context. Uh, every Constan ever? Uh, yeah. Except not... Except not at all. They are dead now. Oh, they died. Okay. <laughs> they are so dead. Um, Damasus is at an amazing spot to be Pope during this time period because it's during his papacy that we're going to be dealing with the emperors Theodosius and Gratian, who are East and West, respectively. Because at this point, we're going to have an Eastern Roman Emperor, and we will have a Western Roman Emperor, and that's just kind of how it's going to go ongoing for a while, so... They're going to come into power, and on February 27th of 380, they are going to declare that Christianity, quote, as preached by Peter, was the official religion of the empire. Ooh, fancy. It's, it's actually now official. And this happens in an edict called De Fide Catholica, which I am going to just read to you because, oh my gosh, something Catholic. It, it's the official religion of the empire now. It is the state religion. It was not until this point, and clearly the rest of history, yes. So it says, We desire that all the people under the rule of our clemency should live by that religion which divine Peter the Apostle is said to have given to the Romans, 
and which it is evident that Pope Damasus and Peter, Bishop of Alexandria, a man of apostolic sanctity, followed. That is, that we should believe in the one deity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with equal majesty and in the Holy Trinity according to the apostolic teaching and the authority of the gospel. Boom. This is state-dominant official religion. Nice. So, this is the man who gets to be Pope when that happens. It's not his fault, though. Well, with Damasus's push through the councils that we'll be talking about, and this whole idea of, quote, as preached by Peter, expanded on that to be orthodoxy, defined by the decrees as proclaimed by the bishops of Rome and Alexandria, he is the head, he is the apostolic successor, so even though this isn't his thing, he is going to do so much with it. And Gratian, Emperor Gratian in the West, is going to go even further than just this De Fide Catholica. He is extremely close with a very, very prominent and very important church father and theologian. And this is Bishop Ambrose of Milan. And this is definitely a guy who will get his own episode in time because he is too huge to pass up on. And this is probably where you might see some Rexy collabs. So, shh, secrets. Secrets. No promises, but there's ideas in play. Ambrose of Milan was a governor. He was a bishop. He is a huge, huge presence. And under his influence in 382, Emperor Gratian will actually prohibit paganism in Rome. Wow. Oh, things have come full circle. <laughs> He will remove the altar of victory from the Roman Senate house, which had stood since the time of Augustus, which Damasus had encouraged Christian senators to ask Gratian to remove. How many years is that? That it, oh, so many. <laughs> so Augustus was emperor in 27 BC to 14 AD. So we're in 382. 300 years this altar has been there. So huge. Um, he will also confiscate revenues from pagan altars and temples and will forbid people from leaving property to the Vestal Virgins or to the pontiffs of the pagan faiths. Remember, at this time, Pontifex was still a Latin pagan title and the emperors were still considered the Pontifex Maximus at this time for pagan religions. But Gratian is going to shirk that as well and renounce the title, so... This is where we start to see that shift. So he is shutting down all sorts of religious establishments. And while he, in the process, he is telling them that all their income now belongs to the government. And then he stops granting audiences to pagan senators, who were the ones who really wanted his attention right now while he was taking away all their stuff. So, not so good. And Damasus is taking in these circumstances, and he is going to run with it and springboard every possible advantage. He is the first pope to go on record, referring to Rome as the Apostolic See, which seems like a minor thing now because we've been talking about apostolic succession all the way back to Clement, if not Linus and, and Peter. And, but this is a huge, suave PR move. He sees that the emperors are making Christianity their official religion, which Peter gave to the Romans. So by making it impossible to ignore Rome's place in relation to the apostle, he is constructing the image of Rome and apostolic succession as something intrinsic to its very creation and something that the emperors absolutely cannot ignore. What's more, 
Damasus had been witness to the rise of the importance of Constantinople in the empire and how that has been a problem for the Catholic Church at this point. You know, we have emperors like Constantine and Constantius who are being swayed over there, far from the heart of the Catholic Church, to, to do things like accept Arianism and expel bishops and ignore councils. Then this last council on heresy in 381 was held in Constantinople. You know, this, the Nicene, no Constantinople creed. Damasus looks on this, and he comes up with ways to reinforce the primacy of Rome and claw back some of that influence from Constantinople. So he calls a council to be held in Rome of the following year. This is the Council of Rome, 382. Gotta give him dates, because there's gonna be a lot. Oh, this is a big one. And it is a big one because Damasus presides over the council personally. Oh, I thought you were going to say something like, and then Damasus sent a bunch of assassins. <laughs> well. Or like Damasus blew it up like Cersei Lannister. Well, you know, if we had a pope who was going to do that at this point, it would 100% be that guy. He would, he would, he would be that guy. So, but this is why this is a big moment and why he's presiding over it personally. This is the moment in which they decide to determine the official canon of the Bible in the Old and New Testaments, and the official list of what is considered sacred scripture. So they are putting their name down on what is the Bible and what isn't the Bible, and what is sacred and what is not, in the whole history of church documentation. What's their criteria? It's a good question. I mean, there are a lot of rumors as to how they decide what they're going to do. And we're, we're going to get into that a little bit as we go, too. And here, for the very, very exciting pleasure for us, is Deacon Dad reading the Decree of the Council of Rome. The Decree of the Council of Rome. Likewise, it has been said, Now indeed, we must treat of the divine scriptures what the universal Catholic Church accepts, and what she ought to shun. The order of the Old Testament begins here. Genesis, one book. Exodus, one book. Leviticus, one book. Numbers, one book. Deuteronomy, one book. Haswe Nave, one book. Judges, one book. Ruth, one book. Kings, four book. Paraliapanam, that would be Chronicles, Two books. Psalms, one book. Solomon, three books. Proverbs, one book. Ecclesiastics, one book. Canticle of Canticles, also known as Song of Songs, one book. Likewise, Wisdom, one book. Ecclesiasticus, that would also be known as Sirach, one book. Likewise, The Order of Prophets. Isaiah, one book. Jeremiah, one book. With Genoth, that is, with his Lamentations, Ezekiel, one book, Daniel, one book, Osi, one book, Micah, one book, Joel, one book, Abdias, one book, Jonas, one book, Nahum, one book, Habakkuk, one book, Sophenius, one book, Egeus, one book, Zacharias, one book, Malachias, one book. Likewise, the order of the histories. Job, one book. Tobias, one book. Ezra, two books. That would be Ezra 
and Nehemiah in today's Bible. Esther, one book. Judith, one book. Maccabees, two books. Likewise, the order of the writings of the New and Eternal Testament, which only the Holy and Catholic Church supports. Of the Gospels, according to Matthew, one book. According to Mark, one book. According to Luke, one book. According to John, one book. The Epistles of Paul the Apostle, in number, 14. To the Romans, one. To the Corinthians, two. To the Ephesians, one. To the Thessalonians, two. To the Galatians, one. To the Philippians, one. To the Colossians, one. To Timothy, two. To Titus, one. To Philemon, one. To the Hebrews, one. Likewise, the Apocalypse of John, which is also known as Revelation, one book. And the Acts of the Apostles, one book. Likewise, the canonical epistles in number seven. Of Peter the Apostle, two epistles. Of James the Apostle, one epistle. Of John the Apostle, one epistle. Of another John, the Presbyter, two epistles. Of Jude the Zealot, the Apostle, one epistle. This list is still followed in the Catholic Church today. It is known as the Damascene List, or the Gelasian Decree, because for a really, really, really long time, it was thought to have been an original decree of Pope Gelasius I, when in fact it was a reproduction that he produced at the time, which it was expanded upon to add other aspects of the decree, like listing the rejected and apocryphal books. You can see the whole of the Gelasian Decree online. We'll provide a link in the show notes. Damasus also makes this council the moment of the official declaration of Rome's primacy, placing it above Constantinople, Antioch, Alexandria, and Carthage. Quote, Likewise, it is decreed, after the announcement of all these prophetic and evangelic, or as well as the apostolic writing which we have listed above as scriptures, on which, by the grace of God, the Catholic Church was founded, we have considered that it ought to be announced that although the Catholic Churches spread abroad through the world, comprise but one bridal chamber of Christ, nevertheless the Holy Roman Church has been placed at the forefront not by the conciliar decisions of the other churches, but has received the primacy by the evangelic voice of our Lord and Savior, who says, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall have bound on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you shall have loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is pretty plainly stated, cut and dry. This this leaves no room for ambiguity over whether Rome believes that it stands at the head of the whole of Christendom. Damasus is asserting Rome in a way that will set a precedent right up till the current day. So, we've had major scandal points. We're already working on major Papatum and Phallium score here. And he is not even close to being finished. There's one other thing that happened at this council that was called to be dealt with. And this is the Miletian schism that has been happening in Antioch under the Bishop Miletius. And this is a different Miletian Schism than the one that happened at the Council of Nicaea. This is Miletian Schism Part 2 because of the names. It has really nothing to do with the other one. Tell people to stop having the same name. Uh, I just wrote our first Pope number 3, so 
we'll be having that conversation again. Knock it off. So, really briefly, we're just going to whip through this because it's somewhat tangential. So, Meletius had been a supporter of the Homoean formula, which was that semi-Aryan viewpoint that had been presented as a compromise between Homoousian orthodoxy and the Aryans. He had been deposed and exiled, but managed to maintain a large enough following that this caused a schism. Athanasius and Damasus didn't support Meletius. Instead, they favored a presbyter called Paulinus, who was originally a follower of Eustathius, who preached a theology much closer to the Nicene Creed and actual orthodoxy. So this group, because it started with Eustathius, will be called the Eustathian side, whereas the Miletians on the other side. And this was becoming a big enough problem that Ambrose in Milan and the Pope were thinking that this should be addressed in the council, so they had Emperor Gratian call for it. But the Eastern Emperor, Theodosius, had already called the Council of Constantinople a year prior to this, and so under his influence, the Eastern bishops didn't attend, and so the issue wasn't actually dealt with. But the reason that I bring this up at all is because it ties to someone extremely important. And this is St. Jerome. Do you know St. Jerome? <laughs> He's got, is that the one that we've been sourcing from? We have been sourcing from Jerome. We don't have time to go in and deal with Jerome in full, but he is, he is so hugely important. Um, he will also get his own full episode in time because just, oh, you can ask people who they know about in the church and St. Jerome is going to be up there at the top. At this point in his life, Jerome was an ordained Christian priest living enthusiastically and dedicatedly as an ascetic with a strong bent towards hermitism. So at this point, he wants nothing to do with nobody. But he was invited to attend the Council of Rome by Paulinus, the one supported by Athanasius and the Pope, in order to show more support for him against the Miletians. And even though this issue doesn't really get solved or addressed, Jerome comes to the council, and he makes a very, very strong impression on Pope Damasus, and before long he's taking a prominent role in the council, and he's making major contributions, and he must have been an excellent speaker, because everybody is noticing this, this hermit dude. And the Pope is hugely impressed by him, and appoints him to be his personal secretary. And the men will work very, very closely together, and Damasus will see Jerome as indispensable. And one of the projects that Damasus tasks Jerome with is to take the Vitus Latina, the old Latin Gospels, and translate, revise, and update it into an accessible, uniform vernacular. Not only does he do this, and now they have, since they have just at this council, set the biblical canon, he does the same for the books of the Bible. This is what will become known as the Versio Vulgata, the, quote, version commonly used, or as we refer to it today, the Vulgate. That Vulgate, the first Latin Bible ever to be directly translated from the original Hebrew Tanakh rather than the Greek versions, which were more easily circulated. This is the Latin Bible. This is huge in the church. 
and it will be confirmed to be the Latin Bible in the Council of Trent in 1563 as, quote, authentic in public readings, disputations, and preaching. And this is 12 centuries after its original authorship. So this is the Latin Bible for 1,200 years. That's a long time. Yeah! It only gets replaced in 1592 with the Clementine Vulgate, which lasts till 1979, and now we have the Nova Vulgata. So we're talking about a Bible that it has been known as the Bible for longer in history than any other document. The one we have now, there's only been two alterations from the Vulgate that have been officially recognized as the Bible since then. Like, this is just, this is huge. This is a historian's wet dream moment. Because aside from the pure legacy of such an immensely important piece of church doctrine, like, it is the doctrine, this is the first time we see a major and thorough undertaking to ensure that the Bible was being propagated accurately and uniformly across the empire, especially in the Western Empire. This ends a bunch of divergent texts floating around, which have been the source for various heresies and schisms. You know, people have been breaking away from the church for interpretations or mistranslations, and he stops all of that and he gives everyone the same Bible, the same theology, the same doctrine. It's pretty major. And yes, I'm, I'm going to just say the full Vulgate was not entirely and exclusively authorized by Jerome. There are parts that are described to other authors. But I mean, come on. This is a massive undertaking. He's done the majority of it. And we're crediting Jerome with it. And we're crediting Damasus with it for initiating and supporting the actual creation. Big, big, big. And we're still not even through with all the major things that Damasus is known for because we haven't even talked about his incredible campaign of venerating the martyrs with poetry. Yeah, I even I forgot that he did poetry for a minute. Right? So many other things have happened. He spends a lot of time on this and he launches building, restoration, and writing efforts to enhance the glory of the saints full stop. He rediscovers and restores and creates new access points to catacombs and tombs of noble martyrs for graveside veneration, which is the reason why we've been talking about those 7th century pilgrim itineraries, because the reason that most of those places are known is because Damasus started restoring them. Alban Butler, the author of Our Lives of the Saints, that we've used consistently for sourcing, also suggested that he had all of the water springs around Vatican Hill drained because the water was flooding the graves of the original martyrs there. Oh no. So this would have been where Peter, Linus, Anacletus, Evaristus, Sixtus I, Hyginus, and more were buried, so he's probably responsible for preserving their burials as well, if, if it's true that he had those springs drained. He also repaired or rebuilt the church that his father had served at, which is Basilica San Lorenzo outside the walls. And it too was preserved enough by the time of those 7th century itineraries. And we're going to be talking about it so many times in future episodes. And of course, this is only part of it, because the part that he's better known for is the epitaphs that he added to the graves of martyrs and popes, both past and more recent to him. 
you know, he wrote these verse epigrams of his poetry recounting what he knew of their life, what he wanted to be remembered about them, and shrewdly adding his name to each of the epitaph as a way to ensure his own longevity, which clearly worked. <laughs> so these epigrams of Damasus are cataloged quite extensively because there are so many, and many books have been written about them in detail. We've even seen some of our previous popes have had these Damascene epigrams. So, And there is an argument that could be seen as the first foundation of what would become the Christian tradition of hagiography, which is the recording of saints' lives, which is pretty substantial to the history of the church as we go on. However, we've, we've already talked about previous popes working to preserve and record acts of the martyrs. So even though we have Damasus writing about them in an entirely different way, I don't really give him credit for creating hagiography. Now, as for the quality of Damasus's poetry, it has been widely criticized by modern historians. It has been called everything from, quote, lame and frigid to, quote, a tissue of tags and cliches shakily strung together and barely squeezed into the meter. Nobody particularly likes Damascene poetry. Apparently not. But since we've read a few, I think it's pretty safe that we can agree that it's not amazing stuff. But, I mean, obviously we're going on translations, and any time that we have anything that's actually written by an early pope, I'm going to be excited. So when we have had a Damascene epigram, I'm all over it. Beyond this, Damasus also wrote treaties for the church on virtues like virginity, on the primacy of the Bishop of Rome, on the names of Christ, but... Nothing particularly exciteful or new, and since this is a very long episode, there wasn't anything really to glean from there. And, besides the many, many epitaphs that Damasus had erected for notable martyrs and popes, he also contributed to Christian building as well. First, he built a Domus church in his home, dedicated to St. Lawrence, just like his father's church has been, which is now called the San Lorenzo in Damaso. He is also responsible for the Basilica of St. Sebastian on the Appian Way, and more specifically, a marble monument called the Platonia that commemorated the bodies of St. Peter and Paul when they were apparently temporarily transferred to this basilica for a short period of time. So somewhere in the Basilica St. Sebastian, there's this monument that says, oh, for a little brief while, this church held the bodies of Peter and Paul. Although, modern-day historians have no reason to actually think their bodies ended up there for any reason. So, no one's quite sure why this is a thing. The inscription on the Platonia reads, This place, you should know, was once the abode of saints. Their names, you may learn, were Peter and likewise Paul. The East sent hither these disciples, as gladly we confess, for Christ's sake and the merit of his blood. They followed him among the stars and sought the realms of heaven and the kingdoms of the righteous. Rome was deemed worthy to retain them as her citizens. May Damasus offer them these verses, new stars in their praise. Because, because of course. Now before we wrap up Damasus in full, there is a, another little aspect of his papacy that we need to discuss. And this is his relationship with the East. Up until this point, we've been seeing massive conflict with the East in our previous episodes due to the spread of Arianism and the dangerous influence that this had on the emperors who were living in Constantinople. But now, we have the emperors declaring that Christianity propagated by Rome 
not the East, is the official religion. And we see that threat kind of diffusing. And this opens doors between the Western and Eastern Church that haven't been explored in a while. And as a result, we have correspondence between St. Basil of Caesarea, who was a Nicene Orthodox supporter, an anti-Arian, and Damasus about the importance of condemning the Arian heresy absolutely always and everywhere that it could be found. So now that there's not really this threat with the emperors over there, Damasus is saying, stamp it out now, immediately, harshly, as soon as possible, get rid of it. And there was this sentiment of Basil, at least, especially with Meletius being supported as the Bishop of Antioch, with his semi-Arian viewpoints. So, he's ready to take on the fight. He's eagerly expecting the Pope to reciprocate his zeal. But Pope Damasus, unfortunately, Basil's super jazzed about this. He's ready to take it on. And Pope Damasus is fairly indifferent. He sympathized with Basil's desire and the concern over Arianism in some capacity, but nothing he said suggested that he was ready to wage war, as it were, the way that Basil is. And this crushes Basil, enough that he would suspect that maybe Damasus wasn't even that loyal to the faith. But he also called Jerome a man of, quote, sinful pride, so he was a fairly salty dude. Even though Jerome was fairly caustic, you know, these, these are just men who are never going to get along. Unfortunately, we don't get to see how this played out because Basil dies shortly after this moment, so the disappointment that he has in our Pope wasn't enough to sour his relations between Rome and Alexandria, but it's just something for us to address, that maybe in the East he wasn't doing as much as he could. Now, Pope Damasus dies on December 11th of 384, at the age of 79, from what we can guess is natural causes, since we don't have anything else anywhere. Now, apparently he had a papal crypt built in a Roman cemetery for himself, but for some reason, he was not buried here. Oh, yeah? All that remains on this spot was an epitaph that said, quote, I, Damasus, wish to be buried here, but I feared to offend the ashes of the Holy Ones. Odd. So obviously this was a choice in some ways. So instead, he was buried beside his mother and sister in a cemeterial basilica, quote, somewhere between the Via Appia and the Via Ardeatina, and the location of which is clearly not definitively known. In 1902, the ruins of a small house church was discovered between the cemeteries of Calixtus and Domitilla by a man called Monsignor Wilpert, and here they found an epitaph for a woman called Laurentia, who died at the age of 89, after 60 years of widowhood and special service to God. Quote, it says, having seen the fourth generation of her descendants. And then this is thought to be Damas's mother, and so this is where they think he was buried, but nothing's been made certain. But that's how we know he had a mother and sister, because he was known to be buried next to them. So Damasus is dead. But who have we not talked about in this episode? Yes, and yes, yes. It's time for the interlude. <laughs> so we left Athanasius in October of 364 when Emperor Jovian died, and Emperor Valens had issued a new decree banishing all bishops that had been deposed by Constantius even those who Jovian had issued pardons for. So at this point, where we left him last time, 
Athanasius was entering his fifth exile. This time, he decides not to go back to Upper Egypt. Rather, he stays pretty close to Alexandria. Maybe he thought, mm, maybe this one won't last as long. And this is a pretty good thing, because authorities in the city quickly managed to convince Valens to retract Athanasius's exile after only a few months. So he gets to come back for a few months before Valens changes his mind again. It's not until February 1st of 366 that Valens changed his mind again and allows Athanasius to come back after his sixth exile, or like minor little six, five and a half exile. And this time, it's only because he's afraid that with Athanasius's incredible influence, he could persuade the majority of Egypt to rise up against him and join the threat to his throne, which is currently being overseen by a usurper man called Procopius. But this time, it's for real. Athanasius is finally back for good. And he will finally be able to administrate his see and work on repairing the immense turmoil that has plagued Alexandria for decades and five real exiles and reestablish anti-Arianism orthodoxy until his death in 373. So yeah, the last two episode interludes have been much more brief with a lot less detail because our popes have become slightly less involved with Athanasius because of the intense presence of the Arians is now diminished because Eusebius of Nicomedia is dead and things are starting to look a little bit more stable. That being said, Athanasius's successor briefly has to come to Rome for a refuge when there is an, a resurgence of Arianism in Alexandria. So it's not all quite over. And the reason we're bringing this up now is Damasus is the one that welcomes Athanasius's successor and supports him in his reinstatement. And this did a lot to repair any damage that had been done by Liberius's alleged condemnation of Athanasius back when. But if you have not gotten enough of Athanasius, we are going to cover this crazy period, all of the exiles, in Athanasius's own episode on Patreon. And next week, when you hear the next episode of Pontifax, we are going to have a very special episode in collaboration with the History of the Copts, where we are going to talk Athanasius and his impact on various sides of Christianity. So that should be very awesome and exciting, and you should definitely check it out. But now we can finally say goodbye to him in terms of our general narrative. But before we end, we gotta rate Damasus. Yeah, we this do. This is gonna be a lot. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Alright, let's do it. Honestly, this is the first time where we have looked at a pope where I've gone, maybe we have a new top scorer. Oh, higher than Peter? Oh, wow. Well, if, if, when we go over the categories, he's big papal impact. He's big scandal. He's got secular impact. There's so much. Papatum infallium. During his papacy. Christianity becomes the official state religion across the Roman Empire. That is huge. Mm -hmm. He declares papal primacy better than anyone else has ever done up to this point. He drives down that the papacy is the office instituted by Christ and ensures that apostolic succession cannot be ignored by calling Rome the apostolic see. 
from the Council of Rome. We have the Holy Roman Church has been placed at the forefront, not by conciliar decisions of other churches, but has been received by primacy by the evangelic voice of our Lord and Savior who says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. This is prestige at the highest. He is literally often called the first pontiff. He influences Emperor Gratian, with a lot of help, of course, but to declare that orthodoxy that was declared by the Bishop of Rome carries weight against the Arian controversy. He influences him to ban paganism. He defines the official canon of the Bible. He then has Jerome make that official canon and the Bible universal, uniform, and accessible in vernacular language institutes vernacular Latin as the official language of the mass. The Vulgate cannot be overstated. His decisions, his efforts are, are fundamental and foundation to Christianity as we know it today. Epigrams, epitaphs are the only reasons that we know of certain saints and martyrs and popes. The preservations of his tombs last forever. The fact that he is restoring these things are the reasons we have them centuries later. And finally, Jerome describes him as, quote, an incomparable person, learned in the scriptures, a virgin doctor of the virgin church who loved chastity and heard its praises with pleasure. For me, there is no way that this isn't a 10. Fair. What would you like to give him? Um, I also need to give him a 10. There's too much going on. There's no way that this can't be a perfect 20, so I agree. And that means he does, in this category, score better than Peter. The only person who matches him with a perfect 20 is Pope Clement. Rogue disprohibitive? I haven't even told you all the stories yet. <laughs> oh, there's more? I saved things for this category. <laughs> oh, no. Because I was going to give him 137 points. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he would deserve them. So, okay. We don't really have to talk about the violence against Ursinus. Murder, violence, um, 137 people dead. On top of that, I mean, this is, this is one that's not going to really get him any points, but it said that he lived a luxurious lifestyle that was too luxurious for the head of the church. Ah, uh, well. So that's a thing. There's a little thing that happened, and it's called, in this, it's called the Synod of 378, where Damasus was called by the emperor to face charges at an imperial court and a council of bishops on charges of adultery with a married woman and murder of another person. Oh, so he gets 138 points. Well, yeah, there's that. So you have to remember here that Damasus was extremely tight with the emperor and had many influential friends in civil authority like the prefects who supported his election in the first place, so... It's not surprising that he will be exonerated from these charges. Um, you know, he actually ends up at the end of this synod with the bishops excommunicating the people who accused him. Oh, wow. And they condemn Ursinus as having been wrong in the initial conflict just for good measure. So we could give him credits here for not only the charges laid against him, but the fact that he's totally manipulating the council. Even more. <laughs> Even more. In Henry Chadrick's book, The Church in Ancient Society, he tells us that this council also issued a decree that any criminal charge against the Bishop of Rome should always go to a council of bishops or to the emperor, never to a lower authority. 
because he's the head of Christendom. So whatever the truth of these cases were, Damasus was never going to be found guilty. He is just pulling every string he can here. You know, and this this is also the council where we see the first mention of him having armed guards, gladiators again. So there's that. Uh, but these charges and their impact never really went away for Damasus, especially the adultery charge. Edward Gibbon even reports that during his papacy, both pagan and Christian critics of Pope Damasus often referred to him as the Aurisclopius Matronarium, or the, quote, ladies ear tickler. Ugh. So our murder pope might have also been a super, super adulterous pope, so... Well, tickling ears isn't gonna interest me. It's, it's you know, that, that cheeky-cheeky reference. I, I love the Latin names they have for things like that. So, <laughs> what would you like to give him in this category? Well, I told you I wanted to give him 138 points. Okay, so I think he gets a full 20 in this one, too. When we, when we do all our magic math of giving him 138... We'll give him a perfect score in this category. It's looking good for Damasus. Just keep him away from my ears. I know, right? What is he tickling them with? Because the implication here very clearly is like tongue. Tongue, yeah. Yeah. Oh, like <laughs> the other day we were watching Jeopardy and we are like, this is too hard. We don't want to watch Jeopardy anymore. So we decided to try to turn on Family Feud. And Amazon Prime has a really old Family Feud. Oh, God. And I don't know the name of the man, but he kisses every single woman on the mouth. Oh, no. Every single woman contestant. And after a certain point, like three in, we were just shouting, no, don't do it, (laughs) at the television. Well, that that is Damasus now. Oh, God. Seculari impactum. Look, he he is resp- he is part of the official declaration of Christianity as a state religion. So most of the secular population is now subject to the Pope in some way. Yeah, and they don't get to be pagan anymore. Yeah, the the altar of victory is removed from the Senate House. This is a huge shift that's not only symbolic, but it's breaking pagan power and influence. He's He's suppressing their religion, their worship. He's taking their money away. He's confiscating their property and their temples. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. So what do you want to give him for that? <laughs> I almost have to give him another 10. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's very hard, I think, just because I don't want to give him full points across the board. No, you know what? It has to be. It, it has to be a 10 because, like, he is suppressing... Paganism. And and not only that, not only is he suppressing paganism, I just have to point out that he is suppressing the Vestal Virgins. These are the keepers of the sacred flame, the eternal flame of Rome, which is like the symbol of Rome's everything. Rome's immortality as an empire. Can't give him money. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's gotta be a 20. Oh boy. Fossium Sanctus. This is actually... This is a category we have more than just our normal dumb pictures to look at. Show me this ear tickler. (laughs) The one we normally judge on, I am going to send you, but I... Do you not want to judge on that? I don't, because 
it's, there is an image of him that's way, 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 way more associated with him. So we're going to look at that one, but executive judgment here, we are going to judge on the other ones. So first, here is the the ear tickler in what we would normally look at. Ooh. Yeah. There's nothing special about this. He does look like a creep. <laughs> he does. But there's there's not really anything to go on here. But the image that he is way, 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 way more famous for is this one. It is a 19th century imagined portrait. But if you think Damasus, this is what you're going to see. So we're going to rate him based on this, despite the fact that he's clearly wearing apocryphal clothing. So there you go. Is that a puppy dressed as a man? He's got the little ears in the eyes. I love doing this category with you because I look at them and I'm like, it is a pout man. And you always see things in it that I do not see. Oh, his ears are pup. His hair are his puppy ears. I am verklempt. <laughs> He's got big eyes. Yeah, look at him. He's a puppy. Yep, yep, he is. So, um, <laughs> I can't give him a five in this category. Uh. No. Okay. I would give him a 10 out of 10 just because I love dogs that much, but... No, no, I just, I love the expression. He's definitely, like, someone accused him of something, and he's he's doing a puppy dog face to get out of it. Oh, yeah, it is definitely a who, me? (laughs) (laughs) We know how scandalous you are. You're not fooling me. You probably have syrup in your backpack. (laughs) So what do you want to give him? Mr. Puppy Man. So a lot of our popes don't have great, you know, expressions upon themselves. And just for the expression itself, I kind of want to give him a seven. Okay, I was thinking about a seven too, so I'll give him a seven. And that will give him a 3.5 in this category. Okay, so here's the thing. We actually have something that we could consider contemporary. What? So there are some images preserved in gold glass that say Damas on them, D-A-M-A-S, which are thought to actually represent him. If this is so, first off, then these are the first actual contemporary images that of a pope that have survived ever. And I have looked at these, and I have the catalog of all the gold glasses held in the British Museum and the Vatican Museums. So there are uh, four or five with this image that I'm going to send you. And uh, most of the work is done by Lucy Grigg. So, very, very cool. So, I am going to send you some gold glass that may have Damasus's face on it. So, first off, this is Damasus represented with Pastor Peter and Paul. So, he's putting himself in some good company. Who's Pastor? A saint? The guy who who made milk? Maybe? No, no, that's Louis Pasteur. No, he's some saint, dude. <laughs> And here's Damasus with Simon, Peter, and Floris. So, who's Floris? <laughs> Who are these people? I don't know. Which one's Damasus? Okay, so in the first, uh, actually in both of them, he is the uh, top right corner. The one with the weird glasses face. <laughs> no, no, you know, you know what it reminds me of? You know when, like, the Simpsons make a weird face? <laughs> yep yep that's exactly it oh and here's the last one with like the a, a diagram of it so one of the images that's but it is it is definitely the simpsons weird face 
Man, maybe we should have judged on those, because that would have been a 10. <laughs> Tempus Pontificus. October 1st, 366 to December 11th, 384, which is a papacy of 18 years and two months, giving him a score of 4.5. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Yes, he is a saint. Oh, we got a saint again, even though, like, before there wasn't... Was he a saint of murder? He's he's actually a patron saint, so we cannot make him the patron saint of murder. Mur- murder? <laughs> murder. Uh, <laughs> he is the patron saint of archaeologists. What? So, yeah. Okay, are you ready for his total score? Uh, it, it's gonna be big. It is big. His total score is a 69. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Oh, this, this is entirely unintentional. That is his final score, which, for the record, completely obliterates Peter as our frontrunner. So he is now our top scoring Pope. And so I need to ask you, does he have all of that popey pizzazz for a papal bull? Yeah, I'll give him one. I mean, obviously. This is a... <laughs> His final score is a 69. We we absolutely do not score these things ahead of time <laughs> in any way, shape, or form so that is accidental excellence at its finest. So, before we go, we would like to thank and absolve of their temporal sins, our new patron supporter, Ari Tina. Yes! Thank you, Ari. It's been cool. We've actually had a chance to talk to her because she signed up at the level where she is on our Discord channel. Our still semi-quiet Discord channel. It comes in waves and, and stuff because we're still waiting for people to sign up. You could join us there. We have a lot of fun. Ego te absolvo. And we also need to thank a bunch of people for, for recommending us on International Women's Day as lady podcasters deserving of some listens. So many. Yeah. Thank you to Christine from Footnoting History, which is also a great show that is run primarily by women. Christine is phenomenal. Ash McNally recommended us. Lee from the Viking Age podcast. Chris from the Age of Victoria podcast. Um, and we also need to thank the American History Podcast, who has recommended us several times lately. So thank you so much for that. That Bjorn guy. Um, so we also need to thank Bjorn the Owlbear of Nueva Mexica. Whatever your real name is, that's, that's what you are on Twitter, and you've been awesome in recommending us. So thank you very much. So we also need to thank Ben Van Buskirk, who you heard do our lovely Athanasius interlude. Awesome. Awesome. We were so, so pleased to have him do that for us. He is a part of a band called Fukushima Laser Shark. Check it out. He is super cool. So thank you to Ben. And with that, we could say thank you and goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. So many goodbyes. Goodbye. 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 <laughs>